All right. Nine o'clock, 9.15 service. He is risen. Amen. Man, I love it. The room is so full and packed and it's hot in here. That's all right. We can deal with that. Look, my name is James Dennis. I am one of the elders here. I get to be sharing with you this morning for Easter. Matt had shoulder surgery on Tuesday. Yeah, so I knew that it could possibly. So I've been preparing for a little while. It's okay. Um, we'll make it through. So, but pray for him. A lot of pain, but he's doing well. Uh, so let's pray, and then we will jump into this glorious Easter Sunday. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the millions of believers across the world who are gathered today to celebrate the same thing we're here to celebrate, that there's an empty tomb, that you are risen. And Father, I pray for those churches across the world. I pray for our friends at New Song Chapel in Kenya and the other churches in that city. Lord, I pray for the orphanage in Mexico. Lord, I pray for the underground churches in Saudi Arabia and North Korea. Lord, I pray for the churches of our valley. Lord, that the gospel would be preached today and people's lives would be saved. And Lord, for all those people who make decisions today, here and there and throughout the world to put their faith in the saving power of Jesus Christ, I pray those seeds would land on good, fertile soil. Their roots would grow deep and people would sprout up. And a new generation of Christians who love and follow and serve you would come out of Easter 2023. And so we thank you for the promise you have that you have the power to make that happen. And in Jesus' name, we pray, amen. Amen. So we get to gather here today and we get to celebrate probably the greatest event in all of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the period, really. We should actually call it the exclamation point at the end of that thing we call the gospel or the good news right? The gospel, that Jesus Christ, God, left heaven and came down to dwell with sinful man. That Jesus Christ, while he was here on this earth, he did what? He, he healed the sick and he performed miracles. He befriended the outcast and, and he called out the hypocrisy of false religion. Jesus Christ, who, who while here taught about a new kingdom, a kingdom not based on laws, but based on faith, based on relationships, Jesus Christ who lived absolutely perfectly, never sinning, loving God with all his heart and his mind and his soul and loving us even as he loves himself. Jesus Christ who was ultimately betrayed and crucified by the people he came to save. But when he went to the cross, he took something with him he took all of our sins on his back that day. Every time I've ever sinned against God, every mistake you've ever made, every evil thought we've had, he took them with him to the cross. And here's the thing, because he had no sin himself, he was able to put our sins on him. And he was able to die in our place, paying the price that we owed for sins because the price of sin is death. And he paid it that day 
for you and for me everything we've ever done. And then three days later, he rose because he is Wow. You guys didn't get as much coffee as the 615 service. They killed that. We're going to do it a couple times, so we might as well get used to it. I say he is, and you say, there we go. He is risen. It's, okay. I'll cue you, okay? Work with me here. This is just for me this time. He is risen. It's the resurrection, the most important event in all of history. But here's the thing. I think we all know it as believers here. And even if you're not a believer here, you know this story. But for both believers and non-believers, and for me personally, I think I don't give the resurrection the proper place that it deserves. I don't think about it enough. All too often, here's what I do. I take the resurrection of Jesus and I classify it in my head as important fact or maybe interesting doctrine, but I fail to give it the proper place which it deserves, and that's this, the source of all hope and power. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. Ultimately, it's the source of all hope and power, and if we'll let it sink into our lives even this morning, it will change everything about the way we live. You know, these last couple of weeks as I've been preparing, I've been thinking about the very first Easter. I've been thinking about the people who went through that time with Jesus, his friends, his disciples. I've been thinking about it specifically through the eyes of Simon Peter. It's a long story, so I'm not going to tell you the whole thing because there's like, I don't know, like 10,000 kids back there in the kids' wing and a whole group of volunteers who will lynch me if I go long. So, you might lynch me too as you try to get out of here later. So let me just give you the highlights or what we should actually call them as the lowlights because Peter has a really rough couple of weeks. I mean, for Peter, it starts with fear. Peter is petrified about what is gonna happen if Jesus goes to Jerusalem because he knows the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're out to get Jesus. And so Peter is just petrified. What, what is going to happen? What's going to happen to Jesus? What's going to happen to my friends? What's going to happen to me? In fact, at this time, Jesus is actually kind of in hiding. He's taken his disciples and he's, he's stepped away from public ministry. He's gotten out of the spotlight because it's getting hot. And Peter actually comes to Jesus during this time and he's like, Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. I'm freaked out, Jesus. And Jesus goes anyways. And I can just see the emotions in Peter because Peter's like us, right? And as we travel to Jerusalem, it's supposed to be this festival time of songs and celebration and in worship. And instead, all Peter has is just gut-turning fear. And he can't enter into worship and he can't celebrate. He probably can't even fall asleep at night. He's so scared. And then they finally get to Jerusalem. And for a second here, Peter thinks, oh man, maybe it's going to be okay because we have the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem hundreds of years after it was predicted by Daniel on the exact day. And the people lay down the, the palms and they chant, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Peter thinks, oh, this could be it. 
Jesus, the crowds are behind you. This is the time. Let's establish the kingdom. Let's go overthrow the Romans. Let's rule and reign together. This is going to be awesome, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't go to the Roman centers of power. Jesus doesn't walk up there and announce that there's a new king in town. Instead, he goes to the temple and he looks around and then he leaves. And for the crowds following him and, and for Peter specifically, it had to be incredibly disappointing. What? Jesus, I thought, I, I thought we had a plan here. I thought you were the conquering king. If you're not, then, then Peter's thinking, what have I been doing for the last three years? What did I leave my home and my family and my job for? Where are we going, Jesus? He's so disappointed. And from there, it doesn't get better, does it? Right, because what happens the next day? Jesus comes in and he clears out the temple. All the people selling merchandise, all the money changers. He grabs a whip and he drives out all the important and powerful people of the city. And what I find so interesting about that story as I look at it is none of the disciples get involved, do they? They all just stand on the sidelines. And later this week, I think as Peter looks back and he thinks through that, he's full of disappointment again, but this time it's with himself. Man, why didn't I get involved? Why didn't I help? Why didn't I do what was right alongside my king? I was just so stuck with fear that I was on the sidelines. And then what does Jesus do for the rest of the week? He continues to go to the temple every day and he teaches the people things that they don't really understand, right? And he doesn't explain why he hasn't set up a political kingdom the way they wanted. And he doesn't apologize for clearing out the temple. In fact, it seems like at every opportunity, he pokes and he prods and he ticks off the powers that be more and more and more. And Peter's fear has got to be more overwhelming than ever because he knows Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are only going to put up with this for so long, Jesus. And then we have the Passover where Jesus takes his disciples and washes their feet and institutes the, first sup, the, the last supper, right? The, the bread and the wine. But what happens at the end of that story? Do you remember? Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, listen, every single one of you is gonna abandon me. And for Peter, I think, man, that must've been just a gut punch. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Do you know me? I am so freaked out right now, and I'm so disappointed, but I'm still here. How could you say I would abandon you? Jesus, I would die for you, is what Peter says. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you're not going to die for me. You're going to deny me. And they leave from there, and they go where? To the Garden of Gethsemane, where I see Jesus in great distress, possibly for the only time in all of the gospels, asking his disciples for something for himself personally. Please pray with me. I am so distressed. And Peter does what? He falls asleep. Peter falls asleep. And then Jesus is arrested and Peter tags along and he's standing outside of that midnight trial and someone comes up to him. Hey, man, aren't you with Jesus? Don't you know that guy? And Peter swears at them. I don't know that blankety-blank guy. I, never, I don't even know what you're talking about. And he denies Jesus. And it's not like Peter denies Jesus in front of a, a legion of Roman soldiers with their swords drawn. He denies Jesus to a servant girl. And he doesn't do it once. He does it three times. 
And at the very last time, we see Jesus coming out in chains, being led off to be crucified, and he matches eyes with Peter, and Peter knows that Jesus knows, and oh, the shame of that moment, the gut-turning shame. Ever been there? No, I have. Yeah. And then Peter has to watch his best friend be crucified. And for the next three days, I just see Peter sitting and thinking back through the last week and the fears that he had and the disappointment he's experienced, both in Jesus and in himself and the shame. I couldn't stay awake. I couldn't protect Jesus. I did deny him. Oh, man. And then three days go by. And then he is, he is risen. That was all right. We'll get there. Then he is risen, right? And, and what happens? The women, they come and they come back and they tell the disciples, listen, there, we saw an empty tomb. We saw Jesus. And then Jesus appears to the disciples, not once, but twice. But as I look through all of this, I'm seeing Peter's got to be so glad, so thankful that Jesus is risen. But I think Peter's still carrying around all that stuff from the previous week, the fear and the disappointment and the shame, because Peter leaves. He leaves Jerusalem and he, he goes back to Galilee. I'm sure Peter thought, forget this disciple thing. I'm clearly no good at it. He goes back to go fishing. I'm gonna go do something I'm good at. So he fishes all night and catches nothing, which is a bummer. I thought I was good at this. I can't even do this right. And they're coming in that night from this, to the shore and there's a man walking along. And he calls out to them, hey, little children, did you catch any fish? And they say, no, we caught no fish. And he says, well, throw your nets on the other side. And for Peter, they had to set off a light bulb in his head because this is exactly the scenario when he met Jesus for the first time. And they throw their nets and they're so full of fish that they can't even haul them onto the boat. And Peter realizes that's Jesus. And he jumps overboard and he swims to shore. And then Peter and Jesus have this conversation beside the Sea of Galilee that is my absolute favorite part of this entire story, where Peter and Jesus are reconciled. And as we read through that conversation, we miss some of the nuance of it because they spoke in Greek. And in the Greek language, there are four words for love. But in English, we only have one. We say things like, I love my wife and I love popcorn. See, there's a problem with that. The Greeks got it right. Right? And so we have to kind of read into this story what really happens because here's what it is. Peter swims ashore and he comes up to Jesus and they, they take off for a walk together. That's how I envision it. And as they're walking along, Peter looks at Jesus and he says this. Sorry, Jesus looks at Peter and says this. Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me perfectly and unconditionally? And Peter looks at his Lord and he responds, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Lord, you know my love's not perfect. You know I've failed. You know my fears, my disappointments, and my shame. Lord, I still love you, but it's, it's far from a perfect love. And they walk together and they talk together because I think we're only getting highlights of this conversation. And at a certain point as they go along, Jesus turns to Peter and asks him again, Peter, do you love me perfectly and unconditionally? And Peter looks at his Lord and he says, Jesus, you know I love you. We both know I'm far, far from perfect. 
And as they walk along, I think this is a chance for Peter to talk to Jesus about everything he's been going through in this past time, the things he was afraid of and his disappointments and how he didn't understand, his disappointments in himself, his shame at his inability to stay awake and how he denied the Lord. And then Jesus turns to Peter one more time and he says this, Peter, do you love me like a friend? Imperfectly though that love may be, do you love me as best as you, a sinful man, can. And Peter says, Jesus, you know I love you like that. You know I love you like that. And Peter and Jesus are reconciled. Sins have been confessed. Forgiveness has been given. And reconciliation has taken place. And then what's so beautiful is this. Jesus then gives Peter a task. He says, then feed my sheep. And I think we miss how important this would have been for Peter because here's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Take over the most important task in all of human history. Tell people about the good news. Feed my sheep. He's saying this, Peter, I still trust you. I still believe in you. I can still do great things through you. And from this point forward, Peter is a completely different person. Peter's life has been transformed by the power of the resurrection and the reconciliation that it has been made available to us in Christ. Peter's transformed. Peter, when we see him going forward, we see all of his fear change to boldness, right? We see his disappointment change to endurance. We see him, instead of standing on the sidelines, he's preaching to thousands. And though I'm sure Peter never forgot the pain of that day when he denied Jesus, he doesn't spend the rest of his life burdened by shame, does he? That same freedom from fear and disappointment and shame is available to us today through the power of the resurrection of God. That's why the resurrection is the source of all hope and power. I mean, look at fear, right? So when is the next time we see Peter? The next time we see Peter is when he comes at Pentecost to teach and preach to thousands of people who become converts. And then he preaches in the temple just like Jesus did. And he's arrested and he's beaten and he goes away rejoicing. So here's the question. When Peter went back to Jerusalem at Pentecost, did he have more things to be afraid of or less things to be afraid of than the first trip? More. Because he's seen the crucifixion. He knows now they just probably don't just want to arrest me. They want to kill me. And it's not just Jesus they're after anymore. It's going to be the disciples and to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Peter is probably public enemy number one, but he goes in boldness because Peter knows the thing that we can all know this morning. Everything that I'm afraid of is temporary. Everything I'm afraid of is temporary. Because here's the thing. Peter's fears on that first trip they were all valid, weren't they? Everything Peter was afraid of happened, right? Jesus was arrested. Jesus was tortured. Jesus was crucified. All of his fears came true. But then Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to heaven where he spends eternity in glory waiting for you and for me. And what Peter realizes is this, everything I'm afraid of, it's temporary. It's like this. There's a great quote that I love. It's by a guy who was a Christian uh, pastor in Russia in the 1970s when it was illegal to be a Christian. 
And so multiple times he was arrested. And when he was arrested, he was detained for weeks where they would beat him and they would torture him and they would try to get him to denounce his faith. And he has this great quote. Here's what he says to one of his torturers in a session. He says this, when the secret police officer threatened to kill me, to shoot me, I smiled and said, sir, you don't understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory. You cannot threaten me with glory. The more suffering, the more troubles, the greater the glory. So why say stop this trouble? Because the more suffering, the greater the glory. I told the interrogator, you should know your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. He knew exactly what Peter knew, exactly what Paul knew when he wrote in Philippians, while in jail, awaiting trial and probable execution for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because all of our fears, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are temporary. We have the same inheritance and future as Christ, to be resurrected and to ascend and to spend eternity in heaven with him. And it's not like there aren't things to be afraid of, right? I mean, we've got the war in Ukraine, right? What if China gets involved? I mean, that's, that's like Gog and Magog type stuff. That's revelations. We're talking nuclear war and genocide. And, and then, then we'll all die. And then we'll be resurrected. And then we'll spend eternity in glory with Christ. How can we be afraid of that? But what, what about the economy? Like, what if I lose my job? What if I lose my car? What if I lose my house? What's going to happen with all of that stuff? I, I'll tell you what, it's all going to burn someday. And when it does, you'll be resurrected and you'll ascend to heaven where you'll spend eternity with Christ in glory. How can we be afraid of that? And there's stuff. Don't get me wrong. We need to be involved. There's homelessness and drug epidemics and foster care system and our education system. And all these things are things that we should be fighting for and towards just like Jesus did on earth, seeking for mercy and for truth. But we don't need to be afraid of them. We don't need to let the fears of those things put us on the sidelines because our future and our hope is in glory. See, here's the thing. It's not that our fears aren't valid. I'm not trying to tell you your fears aren't valid. I'm trying to tell you your fears are temporal. They are fears about things and events that could happen to us and our loved ones here on earth. But because of the resurrection of Christ, earth is a temporary home. One day, just like Jesus, we will be resurrected and ascend to spend eternity in glory. You are eternal. Do you know that? You are an eternal being and temporal fears have no hold on eternal beings. That's what Peter knew. That's what changed fear to boldness. But what about disappointment, right? Have you ever been where Peter's at? Where you just find yourself down a pathway and you're like, so how did I even get here? This is not where I thought we were going. This is not where I thought this relationship or this job or this ministry opportunity was gonna take me. I am so disappointed and disillusioned and discouraged. And when we find ourselves there, what happens? Every Christian we know has the same verse for us, don't they? They come up to us and they say, don't you know, all things work together for Christ to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. It's a great verse. Problem is sometimes it's really, really hard to believe. When it's that dark, when it's that 
terrible, when everything's closing in around you and you just want to stand back and be like, good, are you kidding me? How could anything good come from this? God, how could this be part of your plan? It's so dark right now. Or maybe it's not part of the plan. I mean, we live in a sinful, fallen world with disease and issues that God never intended. How are you going to make good come out of that, God? How can you make good out of cancer, out of divorce? How can you do that? Maybe it's my own fault. Maybe I drove this thing off the tracks and over a cliff, and now my life is a train wreck because of things that I've done. Lord, how are you going to make something good out of that? What do we call the Friday before Easter? Good Friday. Can you think of anything that has more ironic hindsight in its name? Like who at the end of that Friday was like, that was a good day? Yes, it was. Not the disciples, not Peter, probably not even the Pharisees and Sadducees because the earth got dark and began to shake and I'm sure they thought the lightning bolts were coming next. No, we call it Good Friday. The day that the world rejected mocked, tortured, and crucified God is the day we call Good Friday because of the resurrection, because he is, right? The very worst thing that mankind has ever done to put God to death, through that, God uses it to save that same humanity. It's the power of what God can do. I love how Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 61. He's talking about what it's going to be like someday when Jesus as king rules and reigns. And here's what he said, for the poor, there will be good news. For the brokenhearted, a binding and a healing. For the captive, liberty, beauty in place of ashes, gladness in place of mourning. And then Isaiah ends with this beautiful phrase. He says that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Here's the thing we have to know about disappointments. The power that Jesus has to bring life from death is the same power he has to turn disappointments to glory. And we may not ever see it here, but one day when we stand next to our king, we'll look back and we'll be like, oh my goodness, that was a good Friday. I had no idea. How did you do that, Lord? How did you make good from that? Oh, because you could make good out of the world putting you to death. That's the power you have. That's the confidence we can have. That's the confidence Peter carries in to these times when he's beaten, when he's in prison. Listen, God's going to make this for glory. How do I know? Because I saw the darkest thing ever, and then I saw an empty tomb. That's the confidence we can have. But what about shame? What about the shame for the things that I myself have personally done? Those things that you think about, and when you think about them, like your stomach just kind of drops a little bit, like that little bit of bile comes back in the throat, like, oh. Maybe it's something you've never told anyone. Maybe it's a long time in your past. Maybe it was last week. What do we do with that? With those people who I've failed and I've hurt and I've disappointed or denied or abandoned, and I feel so shamed. What about the shame that I can feel about my relationship with God when I've walked away, when I've been lukewarm, when I've stood on the sidelines and can't get involved? You know that shame? I know that shame. And the thing is, it's crippling. It's crippling because our enemy 
loves that. He loves to come and whisper into our ears everything we just did. Oh, you just failed. You just denied. You just betrayed. You'll never get it right. And I think so many of us walk around just weighed down by that guilt and that shame. And here's the question I have. Why didn't Peter? Why doesn't Peter walk around weighed down by that? In fact, for that matter, why doesn't Paul author of half the New Testament, who didn't just deny Jesus, he actively sought out and killed anybody who believed in him, and he was good at it. Why don't they walk around with that sense of shame? Because they realize what we have to realize today, that it's not just the resurrection we're here to celebrate. It's the opportunity Jesus offers to each and every single one of us for reconciliation. Just like Peter on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And Peter had a tough week. And then he saw Jesus resurrected. But I don't think it was until that time that he spent with the Lord in confession, when he talked to him about everything he'd been through and received forgiveness and a commission from Jesus that Peter was truly reconciled and changed. And the thing is, that's available to each and every single one of us. When we, through confession, receive forgiveness and are reconciled to our king, then we can stand back and we can actually believe what it says in Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because here's the thing, reconciliation defeats condemnation. Reconciliation with God allows me to answer Satan when he whispers in my ear, yeah, you're right, I have sinned. I have failed. I have denied. But you know what, Satan? I've been forgiven for those things. I've been forgiven by the king of the universe who paid for my sins, pardoned my sins, and remembers them no more. And here's the thing, enemy, lie whisperer. You can't hold those things over my head anymore. You can't cripple me with my past because I've been commissioned by my king and through him, I have the power to live a new life And through him, we can do great things together. See, here's the thing. Freedom from shame is found only in reconciliation with Jesus. It is the ultimate gift available on Easter, and it's personal. You cannot be reconciled to Jesus by showing up on an Easter Sunday. You can't be reconciled to Jesus by giving money or doing good things. You can't even be reconciled to Jesus by acknowledging the resurrection. The only way that we're reconciled to Jesus is when we confess, Jesus, I love imperfectly. I fail. I fear. I'm disappointed. I'm full of shame. And Jesus comes alongside and he says, that's okay. You love imperfectly, but I love perfectly. And my perfect love covers those things. It's what it says in Romans 10:9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Reconciliation. And it is available to every single person here today. And the thing is, every single one of us needs it. See, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, if you've never believed in that gospel of how he took your sins on him and paid for them, then you have no answer for the fears in your life. They're gonna terrify you. And you have no lens to view disappointment through, and you're gonna be burdened by your shame. But if you confess, 
with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and accept him as king, you can be freed from every single one of those things today and reconciled to your king. But I think the rest of us need reconciliation too. We don't lose our salvation when we sin, but we do walk away from God and we can't, we can't feel this separation when we've been lukewarm or we've been slaves to our fear or we've been living in disappointment and God comes to each and every single one of us today and says, you can have reconciliation too. Spend some time with me. Walk with me along the shore of the sea. Tell me how you love him perfectly, it's okay. Walk me through your fears and your disappointments and your shame and I will forgive you and cover you for that. 